As I said uh, last week in the first commandment, we see two tables of the law. The first four commandments deal with how do we love the Lord. And the second table of the commandments, the last six commandments, deal with how we love our neighbor as ourselves. And we're reminded, uh, Westminster Larger Catechism 98, where is the moral law summarily comprehended? The answer is in the Ten Commandments. When we think about the moral law, we think about everything that is right and wrong. Everything that is right and wrong is summarized here in the Ten Commandments. And this morning, as was just read for us, we have an issue with regarding worship. Four brief things that I will look at in this uh, topic this morning. Lots more could be said. Uh, Worship is important. Worship is not determined by us. Worship is determined by God, and worship is through the means of grace. Firstly, worship is important. We know that, in a sense, by just looking at this context. The first four commandments, as I I just said, are dealing with the first table of the law. How do we love the Lord? This commandment, the second one, deals with how are we supposed to worship the Lord? The fourth commandment, keeping the Sabbath day holy, is about when we are to worship. So, there's the flow of the Ten Commandments that the first table informs the second table. We like to start with issues and topics that seem relevant to the day. And if you look at many of the Ten Commandments, oh, they're very relevant. Stealing, bearing false witness, adultery, murder, and the sanctity of life. But those aren't where the Lord starts with regard to importance. Starts with how do we love Him first. But then twice, two out of the four commandments in the first table of the law have to do with worship. There was a Barna study recently uh, conducted amongst teenagers to gauge their interest in spiritual things. High on the list was praying to God. Uh, Not so high on the list was how to worship Him correctly. So, of course, God cares about injustice, marriage, stealing, sanctity of life, bearing false witness. But how do we start getting... Everybody, not just teenagers, to start asking the right questions first. How on earth are we supposed to worship God? Our uh, book of church order has a part three, which is a directory of worship. It says the end of public worship is the glory of God. By the context in the Ten Commandments, We cannot trip up over the fact that this is a huge issue. But also, we know it's a huge issue, and it's very important by its severity. 
As was just read, we see in verse 5 that God is serious about enforcing his views on and the importance of worship because it says he is jealous for those people that he has brought to himself. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation of children of those who hate him, but will show steadfast love to thousands who love him. What on earth does that mean? Well, beyond the reality, obviously, that worship and what he's about to say is incredibly important, Kevin DeYoung writes, this warning is about God's judgment on those who walk in the wicked ways of their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. You can't excuse your disobedience by pointing to your upbringing or culture or personal history. God will punish the next generation if they continue in the sins they learned from the previous generation. Seems unbelievably fair in many ways. But every subsequent generation of Israelite will know exactly what's going on in these Ten Commandments, and many of them will fail, particularly on this second one. But again, not to belabor the point, the second commandment and the fourth commandment have the actual most verbiage. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're the most important, but there is this warning that's attached to both of the commandments regarding how and when we worship. Worship and how we worship is more important than you realize because it's more important to God than you realize. To that end, I preached a mini-series on worship. Um, that's a, over 18 months ago. It's, it's probably somewhere out there, maybe. Um, just before then, I did a six- to eight-week Sunday school on worship. Probably can't talk enough about it. And yet, this is one of the things that divides people the most, or it used to be in churches. Now we're dividing over all kinds of things. But it is incredibly important, but this is huge. How do we do it? Who determines how we do it? If it's this important, give me more. Well, firstly, worship is not determined by us. How we're supposed to do it. What do we mean by that? Well, worship cannot involve images. Verse 4 states, We aren't to make images of God after any likeness in heaven or on earth. Now, the first thing we realize is that the Israelites weren't initially interested in making idols of other gods. But they're going to get there. And they're going to allow all kinds of idol worship of all kinds of other so-called deities that we talked about last week. But... This commandment is firstly rooted, of course all those other things are wrong and shouldn't be done, but don't make an image of me. That's what the Lord is saying. That's what they broke with the golden calf in Exodus 32. They tried to make an image in the likeness of the God who saved them from Egypt. It was a worship service. It was a celebration. And before Moses came down, they said, let's just get something and make it so that we could worship it in a way of worshiping God. Well, God comes down and sends Levites and kills a bunch of them. 
the, the warning came true very quickly. They didn't see God, but they, they heard Him. So this would involve making images of God for worship in the church, for admiration outside the church, for mental images. As the larger Catechism 109 states, the making of any representation of God, of all or of any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. Now God is not saying in the second commandment He doesn't like beauty or that He doesn't like art. You're going to be scratching your head in a couple of months when I preach a whole sermon towards the end of Exodus on what the priest's garments looked like and what was designed inside the tabernacle. The the rich imagery, the tapestry, the colors, the beauty, all of that has been created by God. God is a God of art and a God of beauty. You wouldn't know that from being my friend because I'm the most unartistic, uncreative person there is. But the heavens and the earth declare the glory of the Lord. So God is not saying, I don't like art, I don't like artwork, I don't like beauty. He's not a curmudgeon. This is about whether or not he's given the the right for him to be imaged under any circumstances. He is not given that right. But again, worship is not determined by us. So what else does that mean? Worship is not centered on us. This just mashes all of the toes of all of us who are in the 21st century and even in the 20th century. Worship is not centered on us. It's other-focused. By other, I don't mean you and me, each other. Of course I preach, assuming someone's here to listen, and I know who my audience is. But who is the ultimate audience of what we're doing this morning? The Trinity. Not you. And not me. Not who may, we pray, come through those doors. Not who isn't here within our church community. God is the only audience of worship. So, some practical questions with regards to how that may challenge us. What do you have to give up to worship here in particular? To come to Christ's covenant, what do you have to give up to worship here? What, if anything, does it cost you? Some some heart questions there that begin to deal with the fact that we have so often turned corporate worship into something that is man-centered, man-focused, and dare I even say, me-focused. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. I'm thinking about myself. I mean, we've all done this. Well, this is, this is our thing to design. This is our thing. He's given 
this responsibility over to us to worship him how, how we see fit, to reach people how we see fit. And the second commandment says, no, no, no. There is an audience of one. Why all of this regulation and rule and, and cutting against the grain of all of our personal preferences and not making it about us? There is an unbelievable danger in the connection between the first commandment and the second commandment. Because we just talked about idolatry in our hearts last week. And what is going to inevitably happen when we start doing things how we want and making things how we want with regards to worship? We're going to break the first commandment. 1 Samuel chapter 4, as I, I even brought it up last week, but in particular, when the Israelites are going to face the Philistines, they have already recognized that the Lord is with them in the Ark of the Covenant. But what did the Israelites do? They said, well, yes, we, we love the Lord. He's great. But that box, if we carry that box into battle with us, guess what's going to happen? We will defeat the Philistines. That box is more important than Yahweh. What happened? Yahweh said, no, no, no. I'm leaving the box. And they were routed and destroyed by the Philistines. Our hearts, as we saw last week from John Calvin, are idol factories. The Lord knows this about his creatures, which is why the second commandment is here. He's not curmudgeon and coming up with capricious regulations and rules about how he's to be worshipped. He's protecting our hearts. To say, if you start doing how things how you want, you're going to focus it on yourself. It won't be worship at all. You will worship stuff and things and other people and other creatures. And go back to the First commandment. After Israel had corporately forsaken the covenant with God and they were being taken into Babylon, yes, he had been in the Ark of the Covenant in Solomon's temple. But Ezekiel 1 and 10 say he left. We can't walk around thinking, well, he's here or I have him, or I can manipulate him, or I can control him, that he'll do what I want. It doesn't work that way. The same Barna study about teenagers, it said high on the list was seeing Jesus as merciful. Low on the list was seeing Jesus as king, or as Lord. Because as one high school principal told me several years ago in Murfreesboro, Lots of the high school students at that particular campus wanted Jesus as Savior, but didn't want Jesus as Lord. But you have to have both. Of course, He is our Savior. He is already the Savior of everyone hearing this commandment. They were freed from Egyptian slavery. But now He's coming to them as Lord, saying, now I want you to know how to live, how to obey me, but our hearts don't want that. Whether you're a teenager or an adult. Because we are sinners. Idol worshipers. 
Anything we can attach ourselves to besides the Lord, we will worship and serve. Looking outside of our own country, in the African Bible commentary, uh, a man who was trained in Chad, Abel Geraru, he says, the personification of God by any representation of him leads to false worship. You could draw a line from Exodus chapter 20 to Malachi and say, yes and amen. That's correct. (laughs) Not simply in Africa, but here. God can tell us how he is to be worshipped. And we have to reconcile the fact that that is often not marrying up with how we would do it or how we think it should be done or with many of our personal preferences. But God is the one who determines, not by us, which is the third point. God does determine. He determines it by His revealed will. Our confession um, describes the regulative principle of worship when it says, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself, and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. This is very different from a lot of other Protestantism. A lot of other Protestants don't believe in the regulative principle, but in the normative principle which says if it's not forbidden, then it's allowed in worship. As you think through what I just said, though, with regards to his revealed will, we can only worship as it's actually prescribed in the Bible. But what about this commandment speaks to that? Because this is just telling us what is forbidden, which is the making of images. But the larger catechism also says, his forbidding false ways of worship means the opposite duty is required in doing correct worship. What does that mean? Well, we've got to do what it commands. Not just avoid what it says to avoid in images. So there's much, much more going on here. What are some of the duties? All such religious worship and ordinances as God hath instituted in his word. That's big. RBCO, Directory of Worship, speaks of um, the Bible teaching of several elements of the worship service, some of reading of Holy Scripture, singing of psalms and hymns, the offering of prayer, the preaching of the Word, the presentation of offerings, confessing the faith, observing the sacraments, and on special occasions taking oaths. So there's a difference between elements and circumstances. So the circumstances might be the thermostat, the physical address of where we are? Is it going to be 9 o'clock, 9.30, 10 o'clock, 10.30, 11, 11.30, 5 o'clock, 3 o'clock? Those are all circumstances. Elements are things that are actually prescribed in the Bible that are to be involved and included in the worship of the Lord. Why? Because He says so. That's how He determines to be worshipped. Who, who deals with all of this stuff in our own context? Uh, the BCO in chapter 12, dealing with the, what the session is supposed to do, it says to exercise accordance with the directory of worship, which I just quoted from, authority over the time and place of the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, 
over all other religious services, over the music in the services, uh, to take the oversight of the singing in the public worship of God. Uh, Back to the directory, it says, the minister determines how much scripture is read, how many songs are sung, but the session determines who leads in song based on the character of the people up here. So there's layers of how to deal with the elements versus all of the other circumstances. But it's all by His revealed will in the, the, the nakedness of the details of the elements. Worship is determined by God by His revealed will, but also by just simply hearing Him. Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. Heidelberg Catechism 98, it says, May not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity? No, for we must not pretend to be wiser than God, who will have His people taught, not by images, but by the lively preaching of his word. Which again, we're starting to cut against a massive amount of our own culture, which views worship as completely pragmatic. What are we going to do to get people here? What are we going to do that people are going to stay for or enjoy or like? That brings me so much anxiety. Because do you know how many opinions there are in this room of how we are supposed to govern a worship service? I will tell you when the deacon on duty tells me how many people are here. Doesn't mean we can't have our own preferences or opinions or thoughts or that you aren't free and welcome to bring them to myself or to any other member of the session for a discussion. Not what I'm saying. But there is... Freedom and the restrictions and the simplicity of what is being talked about here. The lively preaching of his word. Back to Kevin DeYoung, he says, let's remedy the ignorance of God's people by giving them what they need, not necessarily what they want. God's way is to build up his people by edifying teaching, not by entertaining theater. God's design for worship has always been countercultural. Again, we're not talking about a negative view of the arts. Because we have a very, very strict setting here that we're talking about in corporate worship. One story that I find very interesting in a book that I may um, introduce to officer candidates at some point. it's called Reformed Worship by Terry Johnson. And he uh, happened to, to go to seminary, this is probably 40, 45 years ago, where my father-in-law went to seminary in Trinity College, Bristol. He says uh, he was confused when he went to seminary about what the purpose of worship was and what it was all about, to be honest. And he said, a landmark event in my own worship pilgrimage occurred while walking to chapel one morning about six months into my first year as a student at Trinity College in Bristol, England. I had endured the first six months of daily prayer book chapel services, gritting my teeth, finding the experience almost intolerable. 
When told that only 3 to 6% of England was in church on any given Sunday, I thought, well, no wonder. To me, it was confusing, medieval, foreign, and worst of all, boring. But that one morning, a new thought entered my mind. The reason why you go to church is to worship God. That thought was altogether novel for me, stimulated primarily by the God-centeredness of the prayer book service. I was accustomed to congregation-centered services, worship service as revival, a Bible lecture, fellowship, or as a song service. More than anything else, it was the God-centeredness of the Anglican service that had been foreign and boring to me. What I needed was to understand worship from a new perspective, one which took me out of the center and replaced it with the praise of God. Now that's a relevant story, not simply in the 1970s, but in many churches that you would walk into today that may not even be far from here. This cuts against our sentimentalities in many ways. Is the purpose of the service evangelism for the people who aren't here? Of course, I always preach as if there are tons of people coming here who are confused, who are hurting, who have not been in church, who don't know the Lord, of course. But it is for the perfecting and the maturation of the saints. But ultimately, it's for God himself, not for anybody else. But finally, worship is through the means of grace. What do I mean by that? It is in and through word, prayer, and sacrament. Again, so simple, so countercultural, so cross cultural, so portable. John 4 24 says, We worship God in spirit and in truth. The larger catechism says, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicated to us the benefits of his mediation? How do we get his benefits? His outward ordinances, especially the word, the sacraments, and prayer. Not complicated. Not a high intellectual hurdle to jump over. No educational requirements. No age restrictions. Simplicity is what the Lord has told us in His means of grace. Word, prayer, and sacrament are how we are to worship Him. We think about that with regards to being in spirit and in truth. The Word is truth. Everything is done by His revealed will in His Word. Prayer is to the Word. The sacraments are about the Word, as the Lord Jesus is the Word. What do I mean by, by His Spirit? How is the Word made effectual to salvation? The larger catechism asks, The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners. How do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? Only by the working of the Holy Spirit. What is prayer? 
It's an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of His Spirit. Even though there are elements in worship that are fixed and it might seem rigid, the Spirit is at work in these basic elements, which, as I said, are simple, not based on ingenuity. Praise the Lord. Not based on culture, but they are cross-cultural. Not based on the mood of the day, because these are countercultural. I was told, I heard a story a month ago from a pastor 10 miles from here who went to Olive Branch High School in the 90s, and he said, I'm going to go and plant a church that I, want, I would want. Remember, this is a, a brother in the 90s, early 90s. And so that's exactly what apparently he has done. He's planted a church for the last 20 years that he wanted, that he would have wanted to attend in the early 90s. Just assuming that from what he was saying, he's a non-denominational individual. And it was shocking when he said to a group of other men, and, and now my children don't want it. It was so rooted. His whole purpose in doing it was built in time, built in ways of doing things and how to reach people and how to, to do things to get people to come in. That was in the 90s. What we're, what we're talking about here is something that is timeless. Something that can go through any culture. Something that doesn't require necessarily an elaborateness of any kind to do word, prayer, and sacrament. All centered on who? Not on us. But on the Lord Jesus. Because on, the, on another mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17 records to us the Father saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Just listen to Him. And as we confessed our faith last week from Colossians 1, we read that He is the image of the invisible God. I don't need another one. Because at some point He's going to come back and I will see the image of God is only in the Son. Until that day, as we will look at in leadership class tonight on saving faith, my faith is increased and strengthened by the means of grace. Not by pastoral ingenuity or seeker-sensitive people-pleasing but by God-honoring worship that is done according to His revealed will, that we would all know Him more deeply, even as broken sinners, idol worshipers, that we would serve Him more fully. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we try to digest the, the countercultural nature of what we have heard in the second commandment, of how you are a God of art and you are a God of beauty and you are a God of restrictions over 
how it is you are to be worshipped. And that this is significantly important in the spiritual life of our own souls, our families, and churches. Lord Christ, would you bring unity around all of our own individual preferences. May we lay as many of those aside as we possibly can and simply rejoice in the simple God-honoring worship of the means of grace as we weekly have the privilege of worshiping an audience of one, which is you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.